Section 3 of Early Kings of Norway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. Early Kings of Norway by Thomas Carlyle. Section 3 Early Kings of Norway, Chapter 5 and 6. Chapter 5 Hakon Jarl. Hakon Jarl, such the style he took, had engaged to pay some kind of tribute to King Bluetooth, if he could, but he never did pay any, pleading always the necessity of his own affairs, with which excuse, joined to Hakon's readiness in things less important, King Bluetooth managed to content himself, Hakon being always his good neighbor, at least, and the two mutually dependent. In Norway, Hakon, without the title of king, did in a strong-handed, steadfast, and at length successful way the office of one, governed Norway, some count for about twenty years, and, both at home and abroad, had much consideration through most of that time, especially amongst the heathen orthodox, for Hakon Jarl himself was a zealous heathen, fixed in his mind against these chimerical Christian innovations and unsalutary changes of creed, and would have gladly trampled out all traces of what the last two kings, for Greyfell also was an English Christian after his sort, had done in this respect. But he wisely discerned that it was not possible, and that, for peace's sake, he must not even attempt it, but must strike preferably into perfect toleration, and that of everyone getting to heaven or even to the other goal in his own way. He himself, it is well known, repaired many heathen temples, a great church-builder in his way, manufactured many splendid idols, with much gilding and such artistic ornament as there was. In particular, one huge image of Thor, not forgetting the hammer and appendages, and such a collar, supposed of solid gold, which it was not quite, as we shall hear in time, round the neck of him as was never seen in all the Norse. How did he his own jewel festivals, with what magnificent solemnity, the horse-eatings, blood-sprinklings, and other sacred rites need not be told. Something of a ritualist, one may perceive, perhaps had Scandinavian puseisms in him, and other desperate heathen notions. He was universally believed to have gone into magic, for one thing, and to have dangerous potencies derived from the devil himself. The dark heathen mind of him struggling vehemently in that strange element, not altogether so unlike our own in some points. For the rest, he was evidently, in practical matters, a man of sharp, clear insight, of steadfast resolution, diligence, promptitude, and managed his secular matters uncommonly well. Had sixteen jarls under him, though himself only Hakon Jarl by title, and got obedience from them stricter than any king since Harfager had done. Add to which that the country had years excellent for grass and crop, and that the herrings came in exuberance, tokens to the thinking mind that Hakon Jarl was a favorite of heaven. His fight with the far-famed Jomsvikings was his grandest exploit in public rumor. 
Jomsburg, a locality not known now, except that it was near the mouth of the river Oder, denoted in those ages the impregnable castle of a certain Hodley Corporate, or Sea Robbery Association Limited, which, for some generations, held the Baltic in terror and plundered far beyond the belt. In the ocean itself, in Flanders, and the opulent trading heavens there, above all, in opulent anarchic England, which, for forty years from about this time, was the pirate's Gotham, and yielded regularly every summer slaves, Danegeld, and miscellaneous plunder, like no other country Jomsburg or the Wicking world had ever known. Palnatok, Bew, and the other quasi-heroic heads of this establishment are still remembered in the northern parts. Palnatok is the title of a tragedy by Olenschlager, which had its run of immortality in Copenhagen some sixty or seventy years ago. I judge the institution to have been in its flowerous state, probably now in Hakon Jarl's time. Hakon Jarl and these pirates, robbing Hakon's subjects and merchants that frequented him, were naturally in quarrel, and frequent fightings had fallen out, not generally to the profit of the Jomsburgers, who at least determined on revenge, and the rooting out of this obstructive Harkon Jarl. They assembled in force at the Cape of Stad, in the Ferdafilk, and the fight was dreadful in the extreme, noise of it filling all the north for long afterwards. Harkon, fighting like a lion, could scarcely hold his own. Death or victory, the word on both sides, when suddenly the heavens grew black, and there broke out a terrific storm of thunder and hail, appalling to the human mind. Universe swallowed wholly in black night. Only the momentary forked blazes, the thunder pealing as of Ragnarok, and the battering hail torrents, hailstones about the size of an egg, tore with his hammer evidently acting, but in behalf of whom? The Jomsburgers in the hideous darkness, broken only by flashing thunderbolts, had a dismal apprehension that it was probably not on their behalf. Thor having a sense of justice in him, and before the storm ended, thirty-five of their seventy ships sheared away, leaving gallant Boo with the other thirty-five to follow as they liked, who reproachfully hailed these fugitives, and continued the no hopeless battle. Boo's nose and lips were smashed or cut away. Boo managed half-articulately to exclaim, Ha! The maids of Funen will never kiss me more. Overboard, all ye boys' men! And taking his two sea-chests, with all the gold he had gained in such life-struggle from of old, sprang overboard accordingly, and finished the affair. Hakon Jarl's renown rose naturally to the transcendent pitch after this exploit. His people, I suppose chiefly the Christian part of them, whispered one to another with a shudder, that in the blackest of the thunderstorm he had taken his youngest little boy and made away with him, sacrificed him to Thor or some devil, and gained his victory by art magic or something worse. Jarl Eric, Hakon's eldest son, without suspicion of art magic, but already a distinguished viking, became thrice distinguished by his style of sea-fighting in this battle, and awakened great expectations in the viking public. Of him we shall hear again. The Jomsburgers, one might fancy, 
after this sad clap went visibly down in the world. But the fact is not altogether so. Old King Bluetooth was now dead, died of a wound got in battle with his unnatural, so-called natural son and successor, Otto Swain of the Forked Beard, afterwards king and conqueror of England for a little while. And seldom, perhaps never, had Vikingism been in such flower as now. This man's name is Sven in Swedish, Svend in German, and means boy or lad, the English Swain. It was at old Father Bluetooth's funeral ale, drunken burial feast, that Swain, carousing with his Jomsburg chiefs and other choice spirits, generally of the robber class, all risen into height of highest robber enthusiasm, pledged the vow to one another, Swain, that he would conquer England, which, in a sense, he, after a long struggling, did, and the Jomsburgers that they would ruin and root out Huck and Jarl, which, as we have just seen, they could by no means do. And other guests, other foolish things, which proved equally unfeasible. Sea robber volunteers, so especially abounding in that time, one perceives how easily the Jomsburgers could recruit themselves, build or refit new robber fleets, man them with the pick of crews, and steer for opulent, fruitful England, where, under Ethelbert the Unready, was such a field for profitable enterprise as the Viking public never had before or since. An idle question sometimes rises on me, idle enough, for it never can be answered in the affirmative or the negative, whether it was not these same refitted Jomsburgers who appeared some while after this at Redhead Point, on the shore of Angus, and sustained a new severe beating, in what the Scotch still faintly remember, as their Battle of Loncarty. Beyond doubt, a powerful Norse pirate, armament dropped anchor at the Red Hut, to the alarm of peaceable mortals, about that time. It was thought and hoped to be on its way for England, but it visibly hung on for several days, deliberating, as was thought, whether they would do this poor coast the honor to land on it before going farther. Did land, and vigorously plunder and burn southwestward as far as Perth, laid siege to Perth, but brought out King Kenneth on them, and produced that Battle of Loncarty, which still dwells in vague memory among the Scots. Perhaps it might be the Jomsburgers, perhaps also not, for there were many pirate associations, lasting not from century to century, like the Jomsburgers, but only for very limited periods, or from year to year, indeed. It was mainly by such that the splendid thief harvest of England was reaped in this disastrous time. No Scottish chronicle gives the least of exact date to their famed victory of Loncarty, only that it was achieved by Kenneth III, which will mean some time between A.D. 975 and 994, and, by the order they put it in, probably soon after 975, or the beginning of this Kenneth reign. Buchanan's narrative, carefully distilled from all the ancient Scottish sources, is of admirable quality for style, and otherwise quite brief, with perfect clearness, perfect credibility even, except that semi-miraculous appendage of the Ploughman, Hay and Sons, always hanging to the tail of it, the grain of possible truth in which can now never be extracted by man's art. In brief, 
What we know is, fragments of ancient human bones and armor have occasionally been ploughed up in this locality, proof positive of ancient fighting here, and the fight fell out not long after Hakon's beating of the Jomsburgers at the Cape of Stad. And in such dim glimmer of wavering twilight, the question whether these of Lonkertree were refitted Jomsburgers or not must be left hanging. Lonkertree is now the biggest bleachfield in Queen Victoria's dominions. No village or hamlet there, only the huge bleaching house and a beautiful field, some six or seven miles northwest of Perth, bordered by the beautiful Tay River on the one side, and by its beautiful tributary Almond on the other. A Lonkertree fitted either for bleaching linen, or for a bit of fair duel between nations in those simple times. Whether our refitted Jomsburgers had the least thing to do with it is only matter of fancy, but if it were, they who here again got a good beating, fancy would be glad to find herself fact. The old piratical kings of Denmark had been at the founding of Jomsburg, and to Swain of the Forked Beard it was still vitally important, but not so to the great Knut, or any king that followed all of whom had better business than mere thieving, and it was Magnus the Good of Norway, a man of still higher anti-anarchic qualities, that annihilated it about a century later. Hakon Jarl, his chief labors in the world being over, is said to have become very dissolute in his elder days, especially in the matter of woman. The wretched old fool, led away by idleness and fullness of bread, which to all of us are well said to be the parents of mischief. Having absolute power, he got into the habit of openly plundering men's pretty daughters and wives from them, and, after a few weeks, sending them back, greatly to the rage of the fierce North heart, had there been any means of resisting or revenging. It did, after a little while, prove the ruin and destruction of Hakon the Rich, as he was then called. It opened the door, namely, for entry of Olaf Tryggveson upon the scene, a very much grander man, in regard to whom the wiles and traps of Hakon proved to be a recipe, not on Tryggveson, but on the wily Hakon himself, as shall now be seen straightway. Chapter 6. Olaf Tryggveson Hakon, in late times, had heard of a famous steering person, victorious in various lands and seas, latterly united in sea robbery, with Swain, Prince Royal of Denmark, after once King Swain of the Double Beard, or Fork Beard, both of whom had already done transcendent feats in the Viking way during his co-partnery. The fame of Swain and this steering personage, whose name was All, and recently their stupendous feats in plunder of England, siege of London, and other wonders and splendors of Viking glory and success, had gone all over the north, awakening the attention of Hakon and everybody there. The name of all was enigmatic, mysterious, and even dangerous looking to Hakon Jarl, who at length sent out a confidential spy to investigate this all, a feat which the confidential spy did completely accomplish, by no means to Hakon's profit. The mysterious all proved to be no other than Olaf, son of Trygve, destined to blow Hakon Jarl 
suddenly into destruction, and become famous among the heroes of the Norse world. Of Olaf Tryggveson, one always hopes there might, one day, some real outline of a biography be written, fished from the abysses where, as usual, it welters deep in full neighborhood for the present. Farther on we intend a few words more upon the matter, but in this place all that concerns us, in it limits itself to the two following facts. First, that Hawkins' confidential spy found all in Dublin, picked acquaintance with him, got him to confess that he was actually Olaf, son of Trigve, the Trigve whom Blood Axe's fierce widow and her sons had murdered, got him gradually to own that perhaps an expedition into Norway might have its chances, and finally that, under such a wise and loyal guidance as his, the confidential spies, whose friendship for Trigveson was so indubitable, he, Trigveson, would actually try it upon Hakon Jarl, the dissolute old scoundrel. Fact second is, that about the time they two set sail from Dublin on their Norway expedition, Hakon Jarl removed to Trondheim, then called Laid, intending to pass some months there. Now, just about the time when Tryggveson, spy and party had landed in Norway, and were advancing upon Laid, with what support from the public could be got, dissolute old Hakon Jarl had heard of one Gudrun, a bonder's wife, unparalleled in beauty, who was called in those parts Sunbeam of the Grove, so inexpressibly lovely, and sent off a couple of thralls to bring her to him. Never, answered Gudrun, never, her indignant husband, in a tone dangerous and displeasing to these court thralls, who had to leave rapidly, but threatened to return in better strength before long. Whereupon, instantly, the indignant bonder and his sunbeam of the grove sent out their war arrow, rousing all the country into angry promptitude, and more than one, perhaps, into greedy hope of revenge for their own injuries. The rest of Hawkins' history now rushes on with extreme rapidity. Sunbeam of the Grove, when next demanded of her bonder, has the whole neighborhood assembled in arms round her. Rumor of Trigveson is fast making it the whole country. Hawkins' insolent messengers are cut in pieces. Hawkins finds he cannot fly under cover too soon. With a single slave he flies the same night. But whitherward? Can think of no safe place, except some old mistress of his, who lives retired in that neighborhood, and has some pity or regard for the wicked old Hawken. Old mistress does receive him, pities him, will do all she can to protect and hide him. But how, by what uttermost stretch of female artifice, hide him here? Everyone will search here first of all. Old mistress, by the slave's help, extemporizes a cellar under the floor of her pig house, sticks Hakon and slave into that, as the one safe seclusion she can contrive. Hakon and slave, begranted by the pigs above them, tortured by the devils within and about them, pass two days in circumstances more and more horrible. For they heard, through their light slit and breathing slit, the triumph of Trigveson proclaiming itself by Trigveson's own lips, who had mounted a big boulder nearby, and was victoriously speaking to the people, winding up with a promise of honors and rewards 
to whoever should bring him wicked old Hawken's head. Wretched Hawken, justly suspecting his slave, tried to at least keep himself awake. Slave did keep himself awake, till Hawken dozed or slept, then swiftly cut off Hawken's head, and plunged out with it to the presence of Trigveson. Trigveson, detesting the traitor, useful as the treachery was, cut off the slave's head too, had it hung up along with Hawkins on the pinnacle of the laid gallows, where the populace pelted both heads with stones and many curses, especially the more important of the two. Hawkins the bad, ever henceforth, instead of Hawkins the rich. This was the end of Hawkins Jarl, the last support of heathenry in Norway. Among other characteristics he had, a strong-handed, hard-headed, very relentless, greedy, and wicked being. He is reckoned to have ruled in Norway, or mainly ruled, either in the struggling or triumphant state, for about thirty years, 965 till 995. He and his seem to have formed, by chance rather than design, the chief opposition which the Harfagr posterity throughout its whole course experienced in Norway. Such the cost to them of killing good Jarl Sigurd in Greyfell's time. For, curses like chickens do sometimes visibly come home to feed, as they always, either visibly or else invisibly, are punctually sure to do. Hawken Jarl is considerably connected with the Faroer saga, often mentioned there, and comes out perfectly in character, an altogether worldly wise man of the roughest type, not without a turn for practicality of kindness to those who would really be of use to him. His tendencies to magic also are not forgotten. Hakon left two sons, Eric and Svein, often also mentioned in this saga. On their father's death they fled to Sweden, to Denmark, and very busy stirring up troubles in those countries against Olaf Tryggveson, till at length, by a favorable combination, under their auspices chiefly, they got his brief and noble reign put an end to. Nay, furthermore, Jarl Eric left sons, especially an elder son, named also Eric, who proved a sore affliction and a continual stone of stumbling to a new generation of half-huggers, and so continued the curse of Sigurd's murder upon them. Towards the end of this Hakon's reign, it was that the discovery of America took place, 985. Actual discovery, it appears, by Eric the Red, an Icelander, concerning which there has been abundant investigation and discussion in our time. Ginungagap, Roaring Abyss, is thought to be mouth of Bering Strait in Baffin's Bay. Big Helloland, the coast of Cape Walsingham, to near Newfoundland. Little Helloland, Newfoundland itself, Markland was Lower Canada, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Southward thence to Chesapeake, Bay was called Vineland. Wild grapes still grow in Rhode Island, and more luxuriantly farther south. White Man's Land, called also Great Ireland, is supposed to mean the two Carolinas, down to the southern Cape of Florida. In Dalman's opinion, the Irish themselves might even pretend to have probably been the first discoverers of America. 
they had evidently got to Iceland itself, before the Norse exiles found it out. It appears to be certain that, from the end of the 10th century to the early part of the 14th, there was a dim knowledge of those distant shores extant in the Norse mind, and even some struggling series of visits thither by rowing Norsemen, though, as only danger difficulty and no profit resulted, the visit ceased, and the whole matter sank into oblivion. And, but for the Icelandic talent of writing in the long winter nights, would never have been heard of by posterity at all. End of section 3 of Early Kings of Norway Chapters 5 and 6